Well, thanks everyone for joining me today. I do want to speak about the proposed clean electricity regulations that Ottawa announced last week. Uh, to say they are disappointing is an understatement. They are unconstitutional, irresponsible, and out- utterly out of step with reality. If they become the law of the land, these regulations would crush Albertans' finances. And they would also cause dramatic increases in electricity bills for families and businesses across Canada. We agree with the broader goal of decarbonizing the electricity grid and getting to carbon neutrality. We have a plan to get there by 2050. It's our emissions reduction and and energy development plan. But a 2035 target is not attainable. Ottawa's own forecast expects electricity demand to double between now and 2050. As it is now, Canada's electricity grid, including Alberta's, can't handle the increased load that is coming. And the draft regulations will severely threaten the reliability of the, our power grid uh, even more, leading to potential blackouts that would be devastating. To meet these demands, we'll need to grow our generating capacity by up to three times of present levels. Growing that capacity uh, to accelerate the shift to a net zero power grid would cost Canadians more than a trillion dollars by some estimates. Alberta's portion of that would be at least $200 billion and maybe as much as $400 billion uh, of mandated investments in new generation and transmission capacity. If this was implemented in Alberta, we're looking at massive immediate increases to power bills for every Albertan, making life more expensive for families and businesses. So let me be clear. Any plan that makes electricity more expensive and less reliable is a bad plan. And the clean electricity regulations are an exceptionally bad, poorly thought out and illogical plan. This nonsensical plan by the federal liberals will strain our family finances. As food and shelter keep getting more expensive, families shouldn't have to bear the burden of skyrocketing power prices. And this plan will make it more difficult for businesses to break even, let alone to survive. Ottawa's strategy seems to be to placate the environmental extremists while throwing regular Canadians under the bus. That's wrong. It's unacceptable morally and financially. And Alberta's government will not go along with it. We will never allow these regulations to be implemented here, full stop. This doesn't mean that we're closing the door on cooperation with the federal government. We've been clear that we are willing to look at, uh, to, to uh, work with them to build a carbon neutral electricity system that is affordable, reliable, and secure. And based on the conversations we have had with our power generations, we believe it can be done by 2050, but not by 2035. And any plan must recognize that we can only cut emissions as fast as technology and infrastructure and people's pocketbooks will allow. Emissions reductions are essential, and Alberta will continue to achieve them. But grand sweeping fairy tales that threaten Canadians' ability to keep the lights on are no way to speed things up. That is not the vision that my government or that I have for Albertans. We'll participate in the upcoming joint working group, Um, which includes decarbonizing the power grid because Alberta has always been a leader in emissions reductions. And because it's important that we continue that leadership while expressing our strong concerns that we have for these new regulations. However, the outcome must be one that Albertans can afford and can support. There is no room for argument on this. If we can't reach an agreement, 
Alberta will pursue its own better path and will protect Albertans from the ruinous consequences of the latest federal policies. This will be accomplished by ensuring an appropriate amount of high-efficiency natural gas baseload is added to the grid, while incentivizing carbon capture, utilization, and storage, abated natural gas generation, small modular reactors, hydrogen generation, and a sustainable amount of wind, solar, and other renewables to drive down electricity costs. We must continue ensuring that life for Albertans and Canadians is affordable and that families can pay their bills because without economic sustainability, progress on energy sustainability is impossible. That's the message we, were, we would like to take to Ottawa, every chance that we get. So thank you, and I'd be happy to take your questions. Perfect. We'll start off here in the room. We'll go with one question, one follow-up. State your name and outlet uh, before you ask a question, and feel free to line up at the mic there just so everyone can hear on the line. And we do have to be wrapped up by yes. 10.45. We've got a, another so, couple of uh, interviews today. Thank you. What did I say? 12.40. We're, look, we'll have about 25 minutes today. So we'll start off right away and go to the mic. Good morning, Premier Smith. Nigel Hello, Hanford, Mr. Hannaford. Western Standard. Uh, you say we, you will not allow these regulations to take effect that lead straight to a discussion of what can you legally do. I guess we'll see. I mean, I, what legally we're going to try to do is uh, start with diplomacy and start with negotiation. I have to tell you, as soon as I got uh, reelected, we started the conversation with the federal government and we asked them, don't bring through the clean electricity regs. They dropped them on us last August, right in the middle of our leadership contest. And we asked them to delay until we put forward our emissions reduction and energy development plan. And they did. And then when we got elected, we said, Gave a, give a car vote for the provinces that rely heavily on hydrocarbons on their power grid. That's us, that's Saskatchewan, that's Nova Scotia and New Brunswick. We asked them not to go to war with us. We said, we want to work with you. Come to the table. Let's figure out a way that we can get there by 2050. And they chose to do this instead. So uh, we, we're going to fight it. Uh, we're hoping to come to the table. We're hoping to be able to get them to a point where they agree that aligning with 2050 is the sustainable policy. And so we're going to try diplomacy first. But if not, then we're going to have to go our own way. I mean, we will, we will achieve this by 2050, but we'll do it in the way that makes sense for Alberta. By way of a follow-up, will the Supreme Court of Canada, liberal-dominated as it clearly is, allow you to do that? You know, I have to wonder. Like, I'm, I have the Section 92A1 of the Constitution right in front of me. Subsection C says right in there, in each province, the legislature may exclusively make laws in relation to development, conservation, and management of sites and facilities in the province for the generation and production of electrical energy. There's a reason that's right there in the Constitution. And so, we're, we're, I mean, we're prepared to fight it out if we have to. I think that the Constitution is very clear. It's not, it's not just an advisory document. It's, supposed, it's the way our, pro, our, our country is supposed to work. And there's a reason why they have given electricity generation to the provinces. It's because we've got different geography. It's because we've got different natural endowment. We've got different time frames. We've got different uh, experiences of the highs and lows between winter and summer. And we've got to be able to allow for the provinces to make the decision about what's best. Like, let's be very clear. We are aligned on a 2050 target, but we are not aligned on a 2035 target. Thank you, Premier. Thank you. Alex Dollywell, Rebel News. Uh, my first question for the Premier is, uh, the CBC reported last week that Quebec has a record 641 private medical practitioners which residents have paid out of pocket to access. 
Fellow Canadians in need of surgery have also accessed these private facilities in Quebec to avoid becoming another statistic on healthcare wait lists. Should the Canada Health Act be amended to include choice in healthcare in pursuit of a fair deal between um, My understanding is we have very few doctors in Alberta who have chosen the same option. And my priority is to make sure that we can provide the healthcare people want and need when they want and need it without having to pay out of pocket. So we're in the process of doing a major reform and a major reinvestment in primary care also uh, recruitment, and, and that's what I'm going to be focused on right now, is I believe that Albertans want to be able to have the system that they pay handsomely for. They want to see it work. And uh, as a follow-up question, um, since 2016, more than one in five Superior Court appointments have donated to the Liberal, uh, Federal Liberal Party um, previously, and now this is a position legal experts contend is a stepping stone uh, towards earning a Supreme Court nomination. Uh, in light of the federal appeal on Bill C-69, the unconstitutional draft regulations, and a potential relitigation of the carbon tax. Are there concerns from your government that the Trudeau Liberals could use the Supreme Court as a partisan dumping ground to serve uh, against the interests of most Canadians? I, I would hope not. I, w- I would hope that when somebody gets appointed to the bench that they, they take that seriously, since, I, as I understand it, they're there until age 75. And I would hope that they would look at the case that is before them. The problem we have right now is they've been given direction by the federal government to allow for a catch and release on even the most serious criminals and crimes. And that's one of the things we want to see the the federal government amend. We're going to be working with the other provinces to make that happen. They've committed to doing it. There's two new ministers, and we'll hold them to that. But we're we're going to to really uh, make sure that we press on what we can do within our own area of provincial jurisdiction. Policing is provincial jurisdiction. Administration of justice is provincial jurisdiction. And so you may have seen that our Justice Minister, Mickey Emery, last week talked about having a special prosecution unit. So that under all circumstances, when somebody is a risk to the community, we are going to use every mechanism that we can to keep them behind bars until they face trial. So we're we're going to see what we can do with additional policing, additional resources for justices of the peace, um, additional prosecutors, as well as the special prosecution unit. And I, I hope that that will send a, a pretty strong message about um, about how tough we want to be on crime in this province. Thank you. Good afternoon. Colette Doors Colette. with the Canadian Press. Um, I just want to go back to your pause on renewable energy projects mm-hmm. in Alberta. Um, I don't want to focus on what was decided, but I want to ask you about how you made the decision to have a moratorium on wind and solar, because I'm wondering about the long-term ramifications of that. Why would anyone want to invest in a province that cancels large projects mm-hmm. on a moment's notice without at least advising that industry that's affected? One of the things I'm disappointed by that I haven't seen the media cover is that we were asked to do this by our regulators we uh, made the, the the letters available to every member of the media on this, and it was uh, released at the same time as the letter from the Rural Municipalities Association. The Alberta electric system operator asked for us to do a pause to make sure that we could address issues of stability of the grid. The Alberta Utilities Commission asked us to do a pause while we figured out how we could deal with end-of-life reclamation. And the uh, Rural Municipalities Association passed a a motion asking for us to make sure that we're not uh, building solar and wind on prime agriculture land. So I would just encourage you to to, uh, dig up that original uh, press release that we put out and look at what the two regulators have asked us to do. And we have to take that seriously as a government. When our regulators are telling us that we are adding in an unsustainable way and that we have to take a pause, we have to take a pause. There's, there's no two ways about it. So that's one part of it. The other part was that there were seven times uh, in the last year where our power grid was stressed to the point of almost breaking. 
And the number one thing that people expect from us is that we're going to have a reliable grid and it's going to also be an affordable grid. I'm, I understand that the, we have had three similar uh, level three alerts between 2016 and 2017. It's a pretty long stretch to go. For us to have seven alerts within the space of a year, there's a problem there. I mean, you should look at what that is. And when I looked closer at what happened on those seven particular days, what we saw was that wind and solar were not operating at capacity. The heavy lifting was done by our base load that we have of natural gas. And the, the reason why solar and wind have been allowed to expand so much in our province is because we have baseload natural gas to back it up, as well as we have peaker plants that could come on stream when the wind isn't blowing and the sun isn't shining. So we need to have those developed together. But right now we've got 23,000 megawatts of wind and solar in the queue and no baseload power. Why do we have no baseload power? We have no baseload power because the federal government continues to send messages that they're going to leave those assets stranded. Who's going to make multi-billion dollar investments in natural gas if it's going to be shut down within 10 years? So those are the, the reasons why we had to do the pause. If we're going to bring on solar and wind, we have to do it responsibly. We have to get our regulator to tell us that it's not going to impair reliability. We have to get our, uh, our, utilities consu- our, our Alberta Utilities uh, Commission to make sure that we're dealing with the end-of-life issues. And we have to make sure that we've, uh, we're, we're being uh, sufficiently deferential to our rural municipalities who've had serious problems with, with some of these programs. So there's a whole, a whole variety of factors, but it really comes down to the fact that we were asked to by the regulators and we were asked to by the people in rural Alberta who are most impacted by these decisions. In November 2021, your executive director, Rob Anderson, said on a panel discussion that was chaired by you that renewable energy is a scam and that the windmills are, quote, but ugly. You appeared to be in agreement with him at the time. Do you still agree with Mr. Anderson's opinion? Well, look, I mean, I, I love our, our mountain landscapes just as much as anyone else. And I know that we have a very robust uh, advocacy group. Anytime there's any discussion about any type of development in our mountain parks and in our, on our crown land. And yet, for some reason, they don't apply that, that same assessment when it comes to uh, wind and solar, which take significant amounts of land. I think that's one of the reasons why we're hearing from our rural communities about being more judicious in where we cite these. Let's cite them on marginal lands so that it doesn't impact the the uh, the landscape and the ability to farm it. Let's if we can cite it out of sight so that uh, we we don't end up uh, interfering with people's enjoyment of our beautiful landscapes. But look, the the, the main thing is that we have to make sure that we are bringing the uh, energy onto the grid in a reliable way. We cannot build our Alberta power grid on intermittent power. Other provinces that have managed to get to uh, closer to a net zero power grid already have baseload power, hydroelectric power, nuclear power. We cannot have intermittent power. I looked at the um, amount of capacity versus the amount of generation from solar in 2022, 13%. I looked at the amount of wind capacity relative to generation in 2022, 33%. If wind only works 33% of the time and solar only works 13% of the time, we need to bring on more baseload power to make sure that we don't have rolling blackouts. That, that is the bottom line. We want wind and solar to come on in a responsible way, but we have to make sure that we have enough baseload power to ensure reliability. Thanks. Thanks. Jason Markasoff from CBC. Okay. Good afternoon. 
it's been a, a year unlike any other for wildfires in Canada. It's been a year. Like our High River is just a, had to evacuate by plane after the highway was shut. Um, it's been a year unlike any other for wildfire in Maui. It's been a year like any other for oceans uh, in the south and the Art- Antarctic ice caps. I'd like to know what your level of concern is about the climate. And please do not answer about what industry is doing. I want to know what you think about what the planet is doing. Look, we are committed to reaching carbon neutrality by 2050. We're committed to emissions reduction. And that's part of the reason why we want to do it in a practical way <clears throat> that we know is going to address the issue in the long term and still be uh, one that's going to be affordable and sustainable. So 2050 is our target. And we've been very clear about that. What do you think about what the planet is? You, you answered uh, what I requested you not to talk about what, you, what industry and what Alberta wants to do in terms of its targets. What do you think of what the planet is doing right now with regards to climate change? The, the whole reason why we are focused on emissions reduction and a 2050 target is because people are very concerned about the environment. There's, that's the, the main reason that's driving all of this. Um, and we are concerned about the environment too, which is why we developed our energy, our emissions reduction and energy development plan with a practical plan to get to uh, net neutrality by 2050. We, we know it can be achieved, um, but we just need the federal government working with us on it. Sarah, often with global news, part of the federal government's um, suggestion has been that we create more interties with other provinces <clears throat> and import power from BC's hydroelectric. What do you say to that? And I guess to the Alberta Chambers of Commerce who have su- suggested that more interties would be a net benefit to Alberta. Yeah, I agree. Um, I think we need to look at interties with both British Columbia and Manitoba. We, um, in just before the election, our uh, Transportation and Economic Corridors Minister, Devin Dreeshen, signed a deal with um, Manitoba and Saskatchewan to start building out economic corridors. And one of the big considerations was how we would be able to bring additional transmission capacity into Alberta. I've spoken with Premier Stephenson. And not only is there potential capacity on hydro coming from Manitoba, but they also have an existing environmental permit for nuclear. As I understand it, they want to develop a 3,500 megawatt site, uh, potentially that that large. And so that would be another way that we'd be able to bring power in. I've also spoken with uh, Premier David Eby. And he and I are working together on trying to get uh, international recognition when we export our clean LNG to displace higher emitting fuels. And one of the other things that we've discussed is whether we can, uh, there's additional capacity with Site C coming on that we would be able to increase the intertice and, and build a long-term agreement on electricity. So, yes, agree on, on all those options. But let's remember, these things take time. Anytime you want to have a transmission line going across multiple jurisdictions, you're dealing with landowner issues, you're dealing with municipal issues, you're dealing with environmental issues, you're dealing with First Nations uh, consultation, you're dealing with regulatory processes that are unclear at the federal level now that they've come through with their uh, w- with their Impact Assessment Act. And so uh, to think that we would be able to have all of that in place by 2035, I think is uh, probably unrealistic. And it's only going to be one part of the solution. The other part of the solution is carbon capture utilization and storage, hydrogen, as well as looking at uh, other base load that we can bring on, perhaps uh, biomass and perhaps geothermal as well. 
I guess just continuing on on what Markasov said, what do you say to the people that say 2050 is is too late? We need to do something more and we need to do that now. Well, 2050 was what we agreed to when we were at uh, COP27 uh, or COP26 a few years ago. And as soon as I saw that Europe had uh, put forward that as a a proposal, I was uh, enthusiastic about it. I've been talking about net zero by 2050 for a number of years now in the different roles that I've had. And especially since in Europe they recognize that natural gas and nuclear have to be part of the solution. So I'm, I think that we're in sync with the, the vast majority of the industrialized nations in the world. I know it with interest that I believe uh, China has set a 2060 target. I think India has set a 2070 target. It does us uh, very little good to, uh, to, to prevent ourselves from being able to solve this global problem um, and to hamstring our efforts. What we should be doing is looking at ways that we can reach out into the world to help China and India with our best available technology and our clean LNG to reduce their overall emissions. That's, that's what we should be looking on at from a, a planetary perspective. And those are the kind of things that we're going to be putting on the table with the, with the federal government in our coming negotiations. Tyson Thor with CTV. Uh, Minister Gibraltar's office uh, telling me today that uh, a lot of these facilities that have recently been built, I think back to 2015, will have about 20 years to operate unabated. But at the same time, uh, once the phase out does happen and, and they start using maybe carbon capture technologies before they are phased out, he says some of these plants can remain, but basically at the flick of a switch. So when emergency situations happen, that's when they could be used. You mentioned those seven days uh, in the last year. Is that something that's attainable, do you think, just flicking back a switch and and using these plants in emergency situations? Well, I, I would say that I have to rely on what I'm hearing from our, our industry executives. And Capital Power has been very clear. They're one of the, the most progressive companies. They've been very clear that they think 2045 is a reasonable emissions target. And so I would say that we, we need to, to rely on the expertise of those who are operating within this market, as opposed to a politician who doesn't understand how our grid works and doesn't understand what our unique mix is and do, doesn't understand the history of where we've come from. The, the, the main thing is that when people, when companies make an investment, there's sort of a natural turnover on capital. And so whether it's 25 years or, or 27 years, that, that allows for them to do planning for when they bring on their next generation and their carbon capture technology. It allows them to plan into that so that it doesn't cost an excessive amount of money. If you try to compress all of that into 12 years, you're going to end up with stranded assets, just like we did when the NDP shut down coal. We've, that has cost this province billions of dollars that have, have, have flown through the balancing pool to try to accommodate that. And we're still spending, as I understand it, $180 million per year from now until 2030 uh, because we have to compensate these companies for their stranded assets. That goes into the cost of everybody's electricity bill. It just makes more sense to work with industry on the reasonable time frame, allow the technology to develop, and focus on a 2050 target. And that's what we're going to continue to ask the federal government to work with us on. Uh, and final one, a uh, bit of an off topic, but in regards to, as you know, we're in a heat warning here in Calgary. A lot of municipalities across the province uh, have experienced drought conditions with this agricultural yep. disaster that a lot of them have declared. Uh, many say they've asked for support from the federal government, but have not been heard. They've been ignored. What is the province doing to helping those municipalities? And are you pushing the feds 
for that support. Yes, we are, we are pushing the feds on this. So we already have a, a crop insurance program, which I understand from my finance minister, who used to be my agriculture minister and my, my current uh, agriculture minister, that the amount of premiums and the amount of surplus in that fund should be enough to cover existing claims. I mean, we've had um, a lot of close calls over the, the course of the, the last couple of months, but we've also had some billion-dollar rains, which, uh, which is what they've uh, described to me, because it's, it's really just saved a lot of those operations at the last minute. The, uh, there is a, a, a proposal that um, Minister Sigurdsson, he was just with his counterparts in, uh, I believe it was in, in uh, New Brunswick, over the last week talking about what we need, may need to do as additional measures. Uh, but it does require the federal government to come to the table. Our stability programs are all cost-shared. And so he and his counterparts have been advocating for the federal government to come through with a program. And uh, when they do, we'll certainly pay our share. Yeah, g'day, Premier. Emma Graney from the Globe and Mail. Um, you referenced earlier, back to renewables for a second here, you referenced earlier that the media hadn't bothered covering uh, these letters from the Alberta mm-hmm. Utilities Commission and the ISO. Um, the letters actually do not have anything to do with transmission on the grid. In fact, both of the letters, all that they talk about is the fact that uh, lack of mandatory reclamation security requirements, which is in fact what the rural municipalities were so concerned about. I was at their, um, been at their meetings about that and the high-value agricultural land. And, in fact, ISO doesn't even mention anything to do with that. It just says, thanks for telling us that the government of Alberta is going to do this and tell the AUC to look into it. So in what world would your government decide to look into transmission when it's actually nothing that was requested by either of the commission or the ISO? Well, you can look at the cost of transmission and how it's accelerated over the last number of years. Um, there's a lot that we're, I mean, one review. Sorry, stems, but they didn't request it. So how can you? One, one review stems from what we had asked, uh, what they had been asking us to review, which was the issue of agriculture land, the pace of development and the reclamation requirements. So that's one part of the review. But we also know that uh, when you end up with a regulated rate option that spikes to 32 cents a kilowatt hour, that's a sign that the market's not working particularly well. When you have a power bill where your cost of distribution and transmission is higher than the cost of the electricity, that's a market that's not working particularly well. There's some problems there. So there's two, there's a parallel conversation going on. There's obviously the things that we are uh, looking into on the specific pause on wind and solar to deal with those unanswered issues that were raised with us. But there are also additional measures that we have to take. And you'll see if with the uh, utility, with the letter that I wrote to my utility, my uh, affordability and utilities minister, I asked him to look at the RRO. I asked him to look at electric, that distribution and transmission costs. And we, I asked him to look into how we might be able to ensure that we've got a very similar type of approach on reclamation to ensure that we don't end up with, uh, with unmet need when those projects come to the, the end of their natural life. Uh, with all due respect, though, I mean, that's not what you said earlier. You said that this is what they're asking for and they weren't. But anyway, my next question is... Well, they did ask for us to letters. do a so You just told us look the letters. I looked the letters. That's not what they said. So I'm just saying. They did. Um, so when you're did, also talking just about... Just for the, the record, okay. they did ask us okay. to put a pause on wind and solar. Okay. And that was what I was asking. Yeah, I know, but not about transmission. That's my point. And so you're bringing this up as reasoning. And yet it's not, in fact, what they had asked for. So that is my point. Anyway, let's go to the next question because apparently you do have to wrap up soon. So when it does come to renewable and clean electricity. You were talking earlier about the federal government's clean electricity regulations and saying how the federal government had just dropped this on you guys. And then they say they were going to do it and you asked them to pause. Sure, we did it. And then you asked them to kind of just, can you hold on a second? And yet when it comes to renewables, you just turned around and did this to the industry with zero consultation. You didn't tell the association. And in fact, the day that your government made this decision, the companies that were 
at the heart of this. None of them are even told by the AUC. So how is it that your government can justify turning around and doing this when you didn't bother consulting with anyone who it would affect? Well, I would say that if they had been listening to the regulators and then they had been listening to the RFP... They literally got letters the day before very, from the AUC asking for information. I mentioned it at the, at the Rural Municipalities Association when I spoke there in April because I came on right after the Alberta Utilities um, uh, Commission boss when she, when she revealed that we had in the queue 23,000 megawatts of wind and solar and nothing else. We've got no baseload power. So I did say we are going... I mentioned that back in, in April. So uh, whether you guys didn't cover it or whether it didn't, uh, they weren't paying attention to what the RMA was asking for, it should have been very clear that the RMA for a long time has been very concerned about the way in which these decisions are made, about the impact it's having on farmland, about the impact that it's also having on their landowners, and about the uh, the, uh, the unanswered question about reclamation. So, so it's okay for your government to pull the rug out of renewables, uh, it's not okay for any other government to pull the rug out of, like, other industries that we, haven't listened, apparently? Look, we Oh, we, sorry, we, we exist in the real world, Emma. And in the real world, we have to be practical and we have to put policies on the table that we know are going to be able to succeed and we know are going to be able to address the concerns that we have. Pulling a target out of the air with no understanding on the ground about how it is going to be impact, how it's going to be implemented, and then refusing to listen to the provinces as they tell you for months that it can't be implemented, and refusing to listen to the energy ge- electricity generators when they tell you it's too fast a time frame. That I, I mean, I, I, I'm not sure why you would think that those two are, are at all equivalent. We have put a six-month pause to figure out whether or not we can address these issues of reliability and affordability and siting and reclamation. Six months, we will have new policy in six months, and we will be able to, to proceed in, in adding a, a, a responsible amount of solar and wind to the power grid. But at the moment, we have to make sure that we are doing exactly that. We have to have a reliable grid that doesn't have constant threat of rolling blackouts, and we have to also have an affordable grid. And at the moment, we don't have either of those. And we'll take one more from the floor, and then we're going to try and get through some on the phone here before we end. Hannah Said from City News. Uh, it's interesting that Alberta government is standing for the rights of Albertans uh, against Ottawa, but what about the Albertans who are working in the renewable sector? Uh, this was a bomb that just exploded on their head one morning. They're on the verge of joblessness. Is the government doing anything for them? Is there any hope, any news, any resources for them? Six months from now, we will have a policy in place, and we'll be able to take the pause off. Look, guys, we have had companies that have gone 10 years through a regulatory process at the federal level, spending a billion dollars and having to pull the plug because they saw no end in sight. Six months. You will have your answers in six months' time. We made it six months so that we could provide that level of certainty so that everybody knows where they will be able to be to build so that we will know how we're going to bring base load power on in order to be able to counter the intermittency and there will be a solution for how we address the the end of life reclamation issues so yes we have to deal with all of those if you look at the reclamation issue around solar there's a solar farm down south that takes up 3200 acres of land so when it comes to the end of its natural life how can we be certain that it's going to be cleaned up We have wind farms that have 47 turbines on them, all the size of the Calgary Tower, with massive amounts of concrete embedded at the base of it. When it comes to its end of its natural life, how are we going to ensure that it's going to get cleaned up? 
We have asked our oil and natural gas sector, we have demanded, in fact, that they have 3% of their annual amount of liability spent down. That's $760 million a year. We also have a structure in the natural ga- oil and natural gas sector where the going concern companies of today pay for the, uh, the, the companies that have, have, have gone bankrupt. It's the Orphan Well Association. We have a number of inactive wells. If, they, if a company goes insolvent, it goes into the Orphan Well Fund, and the industry pays for it. We do not have similar structures for solar and for wind, and arguably each farm, each site, is dramatically more expensive from a reclamation point of view than a single well site for a single company. So that is the reason why we have to address this. We cannot wait. I cannot be having 20 years from now, media talking to the next premier saying, why didn't you guys address this when you had the chance? We're going to address it now, and everyone's going to have that certainty. They're going to know what the rules are, and we're going to make sure that these are abated when they get to the end of their natural life. There are many companies uh, whose projects have been paused and there are no future projects for at least six months. So all their employees will be laid off. So you want those Albertans to just pause their life for six months and just sit at home? It's uh, it's six months. It, it, we, we think that that is a reasonable amount of time for us to be able to make the decisions that we have to because we, we know that if we do not address this now, it, the problem is only going to get worse. We have to make sure that we have baseload power so we have reliability, and we have to make sure that we also have the ability to deal with the end-of-life issues, and we have to make sure that we're not eating up prima agriculture land. Those are, those are the priorities that we've heard of, um, and I, I think six months is a reasonable period of time. Thank you. Thank you, and we'll go over to the phones now. Operator, could you put through the first caller, please? Thank you. Yes, the first question is from Lisa Johnson, Edmonton Journal. Hi, thanks for taking my question. Uh, I'm just catching up on this renewable moratorium issue, and just to follow up on some of the questions that have come previously, as I understand it, your reasoning was that it was to originally, so that you could create cleanup rules, so you could clean up these generation sites, and then it became the federal government is to blame, and that's the reason why this moratorium came into play. So what I'm trying to wrap my head around is why, I mean, with the former Premier Jason Kenney spent a lot of time touting the carbon neutrality efforts of Alberta and the oil and gas industry to international investors. So why do you not think this move will hurt international investment in Alberta, across the board, not just in renewables, across the board, because critics are saying this is an impetuous political decision. Why do you not think this will hurt international investment? Six months, a year, whatever the time frame is. Well, why do you not think it will hurt investment? Well, it's not whatever the time frame is. It's clear. It's six months, and that's why we wanted to give that certainty that it would be six months. I think the industry should expect that we need to be environmentally responsible and ensure that there is reclamation in place. I think the industry should expect that we're going to make sure that prime agriculture land is going to be protected and that these are going to be sited on marginal lands. And I think that uh, tax, taxpayers and ratepayers should expect that we're going to add solar and wind, which are intermittent power sources, on in a reliable way. And to add it on in a reliable way, we need to make sure that we have some kind of backup. So those are all things that, uh, that I think is a responsible thing to do. And I I think that uh, six months from now, we'll be able to have a framework and everybody will be able to proceed with their investment, knowing that those are the considerations that we have in mind. And a follow-up, please? Okay. Yeah. But 
I mean, the fundamental question here is why should anybody trust the government of Alberta to have a consistent policy for international investors? We're talking about billions of dollars that have just been stalled in Alberta. Why should anybody invest in Alberta when you're making these kinds of decisions without consultation with the industries that are affected? Well, you'll notice that in every other municipality or every other province, the power grid is a crown corporation. So uh, we, we're, we're one of the few jurisdictions where we, it's, it's a bit of a wild west in how power comes onto the electricity grid. And uh, the principal thing that a power generator should produce should be power. That should be so obvious to everyone that that is what our power grid is designed to do, is to produce power. And when I have intermittent power that's only available 13% of the time for solar and 33% of the time for wind, I have to make sure that we have got enough power coming on to be able to compensate for that. And the fact that we had seven instances in the last year where we ended up being at the max on our power grid and solar and wind, in two cases, were producing less than 100 megawatts of power. I know that this is an even more urgent situation. So this is an extraordinary time. And if we don't look at the signals that we're getting from the market, from the reliability of the grid, and from those who are, are coming back and, uh, and telling us that they, that they would like to see a pause so we can figure some of these things out, I think that would be irresponsible. So we're going to be addressing all of these issues. Thanks for that, Lisa. And we have time for two more questions here. Operator, could you just put through the next caller? Aaron Levitt, Toronto Star. Hi, Premier. Thanks for taking my question. That's a little bit off topic. Um, you may have seen that the World Economic Forum's back in the news with that Pierre Polyev talking about the importance of cutting ties with it. I just wanted to follow up on something you brought up in October of last year. There was an agreement in place with AHS and the WEF that you wanted to be cancelled. I wanted to see if you've explored cancelling that, or is there an update there? I had, um, my understanding was it was already cancelled prior to me coming into office. And with Polly sounding the alarm on the WEF, um, it's sort of warning all governments, presumably that would include uh, the provincial government in Alberta, um, to sort of be wary of this organization. Do you agree with his stance? Well, I can tell you not a single Albertan comes up to me and asks me when I'm flying off to Davos to meet behind closed door with, doors with a bunch of billionaires who brag about how much control they have over governments. Not a single Albertan has asked me about that. Thanks for that, Kieran. And we'll go to our last question here. Operator, could you put through our last caller, please? Thank you. Catherine Grykowski, Alberta Today. Hi, thanks for taking my question. I did want to follow up on Emma's question because I'm looking at this letter dated July 21st from the Alberta Utilities Commission. I don't see anywhere where it calls for a moratorium. It's, it calls for an, um, a dedicated period of engagement with stakeholders followed by government direction either in the form of provincial policy or new legislation. So I'm wondering where, maybe help me out, where are you seeing that they call for a pause or moratorium during the stakeholder engagement? Well, I can, I can tell you when you're making changes to the rules that we are going to have to make to ensure that we've got reliability, to ensure we've got affordability, and to deal with reclamation, you want to make sure that the rules are clear before you make any approvals. You can't have a period of time 
where a bunch of approvals are taking place, and then the new rules come down six months from now. That's going to create a lot of uncertainty and an unlevel playing field. And so we need to go through the, having asked us to look at these issues, the responsible thing to do is to do the pause, do the, con, the, the stakeholder consultation, come up with the new parameters, and then release them so everybody can make their investment decisions once we all know the, the rules of the game. And the energy mandate letter, um, it calls to develop a program to incentivize oil and gas well cleanup. And I'm wondering, will there be a moratorium while that program is being developed? Well, we have already put into place a policy where our oil and natural gas companies have to do a 3% spend on their liabilities each year. So this year, that's $760 million dollars. The sites that I have a grave concern about are ones that are multi-million dollar cleanups that come from the 1960s. It's a, a shame that, uh, the, that governments continued to push those forward and didn't demand that they were going to be cleaned up, but we're going to demand that they be cleaned up. We have to make sure that we have uh, a, a, some certainty that we can give to landowners and to rural municipalities and First Nations that when development happens on their property, it's, the land is going to be returned to its natural condition as quickly as possible after the development is, is at the end of its economic life. So we already have a, a proposal in place that is going to deal with a lion's share of liability, which is the mandatory spend. And we may have to look at some particular policies around how we, how we clean up the worst wells from the 1960s and 70s. Thank you. And that'll be all of our time for questions today. Thank you, everybody, for one, joining. One, just do one. Oh, sure. Dear. Sorry, I've got yeah, we're gonna a really to quick one <laughs> since your last one. Okay. Sean Pauls at Western Standard. Um, <clears throat> Minister Zubo has been tweeting out all this morning uh, um, referencing you. I'm, I'm new on Twitter, <laughs> so I'm still trying to figure it all out. I'm just wondering, um, have you had any um, communication with him over the last couple of days? If so, what that's like? And also, what does go pound sand look like from a technical and policy perspective? <laughs> well, first of all, I would say that we're we're having a robust discussion on Twitter. And I know that my Minister of Environment, Rebecca Schultz, has met with him one-on-one. -on -one. I had a chance to meet him when he was in town as well. And look, uh, the point that he is making about wind and solar uh, driving down the cost of electricity when generation is high, that's right. I mean, that's what what's good about wind and solar is that it can bring prices down when generation is high. But what it's not good at is providing base load power. And that's so he's uh, he he and I have have some areas of agreement, some but some areas of grave disagreement. And when I look at the potential for this 2035 arbitrary target to cost us 200 to 400 billion dollars in Alberta, just because of the unique nature of our power grid, um, I have to be realistic. I have to tell him it's not possible to achieve that. We can achieve it by 2050, um, but we can't achieve it by 2035. Pound sand. We'll go our own way. Like I, as I said, uh, we, um, I believe with the section that I quoted to you, that we have the right under the constitution to be able to make our own decisions about how we're going to develop our electricity grid. And I'm not um, offside with the federal, reg the federal target to 2050. And so if it comes down to it, I mean, we're going to do our own thing. We have to. My number one goal um, is to make sure that Albertans have reliable power and affordable power. It's one of the things that have made our renewed Alberta advantage such a, a, a great topic talking point for us in attracting people here. If you end up seeing a two-fold or five-fold increase in power prices, it's uh, we're not going to be able to continue to provide this kind of economic environment. I think we can do it both. If we uh, wait for the technology to be available and we implement it on a realistic time frame, and 2050 is a realistic time frame, then I, th I don't think that we should have much areas of disagreement. Um, I appreciate the fact that Ontario and Quebec and British Columbia and Manitoba 
um, all made different decisions and different choices that allowed them to get there faster than us. And, you know, that's great. We can maybe leverage some of those relationships. But we have to take the world as it is right now. And the world as it is right now is we just came off a multi-billion dollar early phase out of coal. And that massively reduced our emissions profile because we're now on natural gas. And we, can, we cannot ask for those who have just invested in all of that new technology to accelerate that at extraordinary cost. It'll just have way too much of a devastating impact, not only on them as generators, but also on uh, our small businesses and those who, who rely on, uh, on an affordable rate of electricity who are on fixed income. So those are the things that we're going to, to get to the table together to discuss. I'm hoping nobody has to pound sand. I'm hoping that we can all walk the pathway together to 2050. I, uh, and we'll, we'll see. Um, we're having negotiations where I believe our terms of reference are going to, to take us eight to 12 months. And uh, I'll be looking forward to, to making sure that we can get them aligned with our 2050 target. Thank you very much. Thanks, Thanks everyone. for that, Sean. Thank you, everybody, for joining.